0: Please turn to Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles, Luke chapter 15. And if you need a copy of the scriptures to turn to Luke 15 with us, the guys have some. So as they make their way back, get their attention and they'll get one to you so you can follow along. Luke 15. And we're looking at Luke chapter 15 because we looked at the first part of this perhaps most famous parable story that Jesus told last week. We looked at it last week because it tells us what Christmas is really all about. If you were with us then, you may recall that we noted that we have Christmas because of an inter-Trinitarian agreement. I know it's early in the morning and that's a big term but it means an agreement between the members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that God the Father, at a point in eternity past, determined to show his love to God the Son by giving him a people for his very own that would be called by his name and bring honor and glory to him. And the Son agreed to the terms of that gift. That would include his coming to earth to die for the sins of people, people who hadn't been created as yet. But the Bible tells us that Christ is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And so the Bible tells us that God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all participated in the coming of God the Son to earth as man to complete his mission to die for the sins of a people For his very own. And so Christmas 2,000 years ago is about the execution of the implementation of that plan of God in eternity past. And what is that plan? What is that mission? To secure a people for Christ's name. And that's why you find Jesus Christ saying things like, I have come to seek and to save those who were lost. And so God has come on a mission, but it's a mission from God. And that's why in the outline that we provided in your program, that's the title of these two messages. God on a mission from whom? From God. This is part two, then, of the story of God's mission, seeking to save those who have been lost. Jesus begins to hone in on the execution of that mission in three parables found in Luke chapter 15. In the first part of Luke 15, he speaks about a lost sheep and a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one wanders away. And the good shepherd will leave the 99 and he will go and find the one who is lost and he will gently bring him back into the fold. Then Jesus speaks secondly of a, a lost coin. A woman who has ten coins, but if she loses one of those, she will go and find it. And when she finds it, there will be great joy such that she will call her friends together and she will say, Celebrate with me because I have found this coin that was lost. Then verse number 7 of Luke 15 tells us that there's great joy in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. Jesus wants to drive this point home that he has come on a mission from God to seek and to save those who are lost. And so he gives a third and most poignant story or parable, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. Last week we saw the first two acts of that three-act drama that goes from verses 11 to verse 32 of Luke 15. And we saw the younger, prodigal, extravagant, Reckless son who left his father and went to a far country and spent his inheritance and found himself in great need for the first time in his life. And he came to himself, the Bible tells us, and he came back to the father, repentant, asking simply to be a servant in his father's house. verse 20, the Bible tells us in the second act of this drama that the father did what no one would expect instead of reprimanding this boy and requiring that he grovel and pay to the last farthing what he owed, he ran to him, seeing him afar off, the Bible says. He ran to him and he threw his arms around his son and he ordered his servants to put sandals on his feet and the best robe around him and a ring upon his finger signifying that he is fully accepted now back into the Father's house. Shows us the love of the Father For all of us who like sheep, the Bible says, have gone astray. Today we see the third and climactic act in this drama that is the parable of the lost son. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus says in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And today we're going to see the reaction of the second son, the older son. And it is very convicting for me to see the way this older son reacted to the return of his brother. And I warn you ahead of time, it may be very convicting for you as well. The truth is, virtually every person, and I'm quite sure every person here, would admit that at times we all fall short of what we should be morally. Many of us would even be willing to call that moral lapse by the S-word that unfortunately is not used in our churches very often, but is used in the Bible very often. The S-word is sin, and us as sinners, and in the process of sinning, we might call that moral lapse by its biblical name, sin, and so affirm what the Bible says that all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. But while we might admit that we're sinners, I mean, who isn't, right? That's the way we look at it. Hey, we all are. And we all are. There are different ways of sinning, and there are different kinds of sinners. There's the party boy or girl. Irresponsible. The smart aleck in the back of the classroom who you knew, and everyone in the class knew, when you graduated, was most likely to... Whatever. But it was going to be bad. And he was probably proud of it. And then there are people like many of us who, in the words of President Bill Clinton, work hard, pay the taxes, and play by the rules. There's an irony for you, isn't it? You do what you're told. You were somewhat conscientious in school, perhaps even got a degree, a good job, a cute family. Yeah, we sin. But not like some people. Not like the rebel. Not like the irresponsible party type. And so what's the difference then between these two types of sinners and sinning? Is there a qualitative difference between him or her and me? Am I better than him in the eyes of God? Because I haven't strayed too far from home and I followed the map that's been laid out for me? And that fits many of us. I will tell you that that scenario fits me personally. Not straying too far from home. Following the map that's laid out for me. Having fun while I was growing up, but not not too crazy. Not irresponsible and so on. And so, so what's the difference? Am I better then than the other type of sinner and sinning? I know that's not true. And most of you, I trust, know that's not true. I know the Bible teaches that I, we are not better. And even though my sin is more covert than overt, it is still sin in God's eyes. You remember Jesus saying, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart, you have committed Murder already. More covert to be sure, but sin to be sure as well in the eyes of God. There are different kinds of sinners. And there seems to be a difference, but I can't quite put my finger, you might be saying, on that difference. Well, how about this? Here's one difference. Consequences. The overt, rebellious, irresponsible party type will soon most often, suffer the consequences. And so, yes, my sin is just as bad as his in its nature, but the consequences are quite different. So one of the favorite verses, then, of the more conscientious type, the rule keeper, the respectable sinner, is whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. You reap what you sow we find ourselves shaking our head in sadness and disapproval. You should have known better. But you had to be a party animal. And you had to focus on yourself. And meanwhile, you leave the real work to the rest of us who work hard and pay the taxes and play by the rules. And while it's sad, you know you got to pay the piper. You made your bed, you're going to have to lie in it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Right? That's what goes through our minds. Perhaps we even even said as much. There are always consequences. And those of us who fit into the more covert type of sinner, there are always consequences. And thank God for that. Because there's going to be a difference shown in you and the way you behaved, and me and the way I behave. It is true. Sin has a price. There are wages to sin. The Bible teaches that sin is very costly. But what if, friends, the one who sins, hear this, the one who sins doesn't pay the cost? Now what about the whole consequences thing? What if someone else pays the bill for them? And what if, now get this, what if you, the responsible, rule-keeping, degree-owning, respectable citizen, had to pay the cost for somebody else's foolishness? How would you feel about that? Your younger sibling goes off and squanders everything. And you've been home all the while, doing all the stuff, and I've got to pay for what this idiot did? We're all sinners, but we sin in different ways and with presumably and usually different consequences, but not always. You say, what about justice? What about what's fair? What about what giving, about giving me what I deserve and him what he deserves? What about letting me keep what I've earned, my hard-earned money? Why should I? And on it goes. Can't you hear yourself thinking? it? And if in your heart, friend, you are now crying out for justice, you are going to be able to identify with the third character in Jesus' dramatic story that we began last week. Let's ask the Lord to help us. And then we'll look at what Jesus says about the older brother in the parable of the lost son. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to look into the pages of your word and to find there this timeless, marvelous, penetrating story from the lips of God the Son. We thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you for the many facets of truth that it contains. We thank you for its convicting work on our hearts, on my heart. We ask you to use it again this Lord's Day to work change in us so that we can be like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The reason Jesus gives these three parables in Luke 15 about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son it's because Jesus has a running battle with some people who kept all the rules, who were respectable, who were conscientious. This running battle goes back in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. And there Jesus said to them, I have come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus felt compelled because of their beginning opposition to him and his ministry to point out to them, if you don't have a need, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, then my ministry is not for you. I have come to call those who need me and what I offer a payment for their sin. started back in chapter 5. And then in chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, he gives another story about a man named Zacchaeus who was a hated individual, a tax collector, that Jesus went to his house and dined with. And Jesus was accused of eating with tax collectors, the lowest of the low in that society. And Jesus says there in Luke 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So in chapter 5, he has said, I've come to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. In chapter 19, I have come to seek and to save those who were lost. And in between, in chapter 15, he gives these examples of lost things. A lost sheep and a lost coin, and now a lost son. And he's doing this because he's receiving this opposition. Opposition from the religious leaders. Those who had kept the rules. Those who were straight-laced. Those who hadn't been out partying. And frankly, they didn't care much. For those who had. And so often you find them accusing Jesus of being with tax collectors and sinners. It's an accusation that they hope will stick. The Bible tells us that they they complain that Jesus found himself with tax collectors and sinners. Notice verse number 2 of Luke 15. It tells us But the Pharisees complained that Jesus spent his time with sinners. And so, Jesus began to tell them then these parables. Now, here's the context. Jesus has this running battle with the rule keepers, the straight-laced type, the religious types. And they are complaining about the company that Jesus keeps, the crowd that he's... Attract is attracted to him and that he hangs around with. And in response now to their complaint, and by the way, that word complaint is emphatic in Greek. It means they complain passionately and persistently about what Jesus was doing. And in response to that, Jesus gives these parables of lost things. And so, they had said earlier in Luke chapter 7, he, Jesus, is indeed a friend of tax collector's And sinners. These religious leaders are known by a name in your Bible. Pharisees. So you see that name. Many of you know what that is. Some of you may not. But they were a particular sect. A particular group of religious leaders. Highly respected. Kept all of the rules of the law and more meticulously. External obedience to a prescribed list was extremely important to them. Any variation from the prescribed list, was seen as a violation against God's law, even if it wasn't something contained in the law of God. Very meticulous. And yet Jesus was having attracted to him people who were from the other side of the tracks, people who did not fit the profile that these religious leaders saw as important, tax collectors and sinners. And often in Jesus' ministry, you find the religious people and the other people contrasted. Sometimes you find a religious person and a sexual outcast. As you see in Luke chapter 7, where you have a prostitute who comes and offers an expensive perfume in honor of Jesus. And Jesus gladly receives her honor, but he's criticized by the religious rule-keeping types. And sometimes there's a religious person pitted against a racial outcast, as you find in John chapter 4. You all remember the story of the Samaritan woman at a well that Jesus spoke with. And a Samaritan was despised because they were half-breed Jews. And here Jesus is ministering to this woman and he's criticized by the religious leaders the Pharisees, and the scribes. Sometimes Jesus is pitted against the religious leaders as he takes in a political political outcast in Luke 19, like Zacchaeus, this tax collector, considered to be a traitor to the people. He's of the wrong political party. And in all of those, it is always the outcast who connects with Jesus. And the religious leaders focused primarily on what's external. Never do. And their complaint is threefold. Over and over with Jesus, he violates the Sabbath. That is, he doesn't keep the law meticulously like he should. And secondly, he claims too much for himself. Who does he think he is? Making himself God. And he hangs out with low lives. And that's the way they would put it. He violates the Sabbath, he claims too much for himself, and he hangs out with these kinds of people. Luke 15 is about that third charge, hanging out with the wrong kind of people. Jesus is bringing to a crescendo now his accusation against those religious leaders in this story of the rebellious lost son. In verse 7 and in verse 10, he speaks of rejoicing in heaven. And at the end of this story of the lost son who was virtually dead and now brought back to life, and the party that ensues because of the joy of the father, there's rejoicing in the house of this father, but there's not rejoicing on the part of one individual. And that is this older brother. Jesus says in the next chapter to these religious leaders, Represented by this angry older brother. You justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What's highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Poignant indeed. And so now try to imagine yourself. And you're one of the Pharisees. You keep all of the rules. And you're listening to this story. In your assessment, practically everything these characters in the story have done up to this point has been permeated with shame. The prodigal son's escapades were scandalous. The father's rush to forgive in your mind is appalling. A huge banquet where all the villagers become participants in this, in this party capped it all off with yet another disgraceful event. It's a celebration of shame in your mind. And along the way, you've been producing gasps and exclamations and gestures every time you felt you needed to make your disapproval known. And so as Jesus tells the story, when the son demanded his inheritance, you frowned deeply and you shook your head. And when the father then gives him what what he asked for, you mutter in protest. When the boy quickly squanders all his wealth, as we saw last week, you exclaimed about the shame of it all. When he took a job tending pigs, as Jesus tells in the story, you gasp in horror. Certain aspects of this story have been mystifying to you. You don't quite understand the son's repentance, his decision to come home. But then suddenly you're outraged again because the father forgives him and throws his arms around him. He doesn't make him do anything. And finally, there's this elaborate feast that just leaves you shaking your head to your way of thinking. The Father's determination to celebrate is the most troubling thing of all. It's something you could not possibly have foreseen. You don't like the direction the story is headed at the moment. But nevertheless, the story has drawn you in because its major themes are the things you really care about. Honor and shame, earning approval versus deserving wrath, maintaining a proper appearance contrasted with openly sinning, Being rewarded for doing something well as opposed to being scorned for doing wrong. you followed this story with the expectation that those who have acted shamefully will somehow in the end reap the appropriate consequences. In short, you're waiting for one of these characters to do something that's perceived as right. Nobody's done anything right yet. The son has sinned. The father's a cream puff. Doesn't stand up for anything. Nobody's done anything right or honorable. And the older brother is the last best hope you have. Here comes someone now that I can identify with. And you think to yourself, surely at last, this guy is going to get this story right. But notice what the Bible says in verse 25. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You're listening as a Pharisee. (laughs) And Jesus says that. And he ends it there. With your hero left outside the house. Your hero is not the knight in shining armor. As a matter of fact, he's the worst character in this entire story. You thought it was the rebellious son. You thought it was the cream puff, permissive father. But in fact, it turns out to be a mirror with your image in it. And Jesus drives the point home. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. This shows the wealth of the father. Because other people have heard about this pending party now. But he knows nothing about it. The father's holdings are so vast that he is in a part of the field, not working, overseeing the work of others, no doubt. But nonetheless, he's in a part of the field where he doesn't even know there's a party to be had. When he returns, it is no doubt nighttime because they would do a full day's work while they had daylight. And word would filter throughout the day, throughout the village, that there's going to be a party. And word had indeed filtered to those who were in the village. But he was out in some other reach of the father's property, hadn't heard. And so the older son's in the field and he came near the house and he hears this music and dancing. And no doubt his blood pressure begins to go up. What's all this going to cost? Why didn't anyone tell me about this party? And so verse 26, he calls one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is gone. Uh, my brother. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now notice the way the servant speaks in verse 27. Your brother has come. But then notice verse 30. When the older brother speaks of his younger brother, he says, This son of yours doesn't belong to me. Not part of our family. He hasn't kept the rules the way I have. And so he insults his father. Verse 28. His father has already been insulted publicly by the younger son as we saw last week. Now he's going to be insulted again by the older son in verse 28 who became angry and refused to go in. His father goes out and pleads with him to come in and join in the festivities. He becomes disrespectful to his father. In verse 29, he answers his father this way. He says, look. Can't you see him? Pointing his finger in his father's face. Listen to me. Look. This is the way it works. Deep inside, this older brother believes he has the right to order his father around. Those who keep the rules fastidiously often think that they have earned the right to tell other people what to do, including God. Disrespectfully, look, you owe me. And here's why you owe me. Because, verse 29, I've been slaving for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Why is he so angry? He's angry at the cost of this thing. You kill the fattened calf for this guy who's already squandered one-third of my property. He was given his third when last we saw him. And now you are bringing him back into the family. Now hear this, which is now going to cost me. Because now, having been fully brought into the family... When the father does die, it'll be divvied up again, but what will be divvied up will be a much smaller pie because he's already squandered his portion. This is costing me. You're asking me to pay the price for him. Who does that? What kind of justice is that? How can that possibly be fair? The younger brother has done nothing to deserve what you've given Now friends, that's the scenario. That's the kind of person that this older brother is representing the religious leaders who opposed Jesus at every turn because he attracted people from the wrong side of the tracks. What I'd like to do is make some application then of this teaching of Jesus for you and me. People who are in danger of being modern-day older brothers if we're not very careful in the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. And so I say in the outline that we provided for you, friends, we need to be aware of religious sin. Now, what do I mean by religious sin? Remember I mentioned earlier that there are two kinds of sinners and two kinds of sin. There is the overt and the covert. Religious sin is covert sin. It's sin that's not so obvious. It's not flagrant. It's not in your face until it's angered. It keeps the rules. Externally, it looks right. And so, therefore, it thinks it is right. Religious sin believes if I do the stuff and I keep the rules meticulously, if I have the right position and I put forth the right effort, then I'll be right with God. But covertly, the heart is the issue. And what we do in our religious observances, if we are not very careful, simply covers over, masks over, teeming sin within our hearts. As seen in this older brother. I have, notice verse 29, I have never disobeyed your orders. Maybe that's true externally. Everything that he was told to do, every time he was told to be at church, he was at church. Every time he was told there was a special offering, he gave to it. Maybe he did all of that stuff. But he has disobeyed. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He simply doesn't realize it. Further, he shows in his contempt for his father that at root he has the same problem that his rebellious younger son had. Namely, he wanted the father's goods more than he wanted the father. He loved the father's stuff more than he loved the father. And so we must beware, friends, of religious sin but we also need to beware of religious sinners. Religious sin is external, covert, think cover. Sin that's covered but is nevertheless present. It's religious sin. and Beware of religious sinners. Because those who fit into this mindset are people who are often joyless. And angry. And judgmental. And when there should be a celebration, they're on the outside looking in. When we should be singing joyous praise to God, they can't open their mouths in praise to Him because there's such teeming resentment that God would show mercy to people who are unworthy. So their churches all look the same. And everybody in them looks the same. And everybody talks the same game. Respectable. And if you don't look the part, and you don't talk the part, and you don't have the right pedigree and the right background, then you need to go back to your side of the tracks. You hear me well. This will be till Jesus returns or I die. This will be a place where it is forever safe to be a sinner. And let me tell you, if you don't want a church like that, then you do not want Community Baptist Church. You say, Pastor, that's hard stuff. Listen, Jesus had his hardest, most harsh rhetoric for those who used religion as a cover for their own teeming resentment and sin. And this place will never be that. One of the reasons that I decided to preach on the parable of the prodigal was I felt it fit with Christmas to be sure. But like everything that I choose to preach, I felt our church needed to hear it. I haven't heard a lot. I thank God for that. But I have heard some comments that do not fit what we're about here. And I want to serve you notice that this place embraces anyone who wants to come to Jesus. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Anyone who wants to learn of Jesus. No matter where you've been, no matter what you look like, no matter what you know or you don't know, you come to the Savior and we are happy to throw a party, to have a celebration. When you get baptized, we're going to have a celebration. Because it's party time now. Why? Because there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And friends, if there's not joy in your heart, then you're not in tune the God of heaven. So beware of religious sin and religious sinners. And ongoing, thirdly, religious sinning. Friends, I pray that you and I will search our hearts and ask ourselves, do I have this deep-seated anger and resentment that I have not gotten what I deserve. And others who haven't kept the rules as well as I have just sort of waltz in and everything's fine. Where do you get off walking in here thinking that you can be a part of this club having not paid your dues the way I have? Ongoing religious sinning and anger and a resentment It becomes then a judgmentalism. As you look at others and you say, you reap what you sow, where are the consequences? You should be coming in here on bended knee, groveling for all that you've done. You just want to come in and be named with the saints? Are you kidding me? And the ongoing religious sin of joylessness, I hate life. Every time I see these happy people just loving Jesus, you know, singing praise to Him, you know, don't know their books of the Bible, don't know the Old Testament from the New Testament, haven't learned all the verses I've learned, haven't been to half the church services I've been doing my life, haven't heard the sermons that I've heard, can't put their doctrine together, and you're happy in Jesus, what gives you the right to be happy in Jesus? Listen, you're going to be joyless just like me. Beware, friends, of ongoing religious sinning. We conclude by making a point that's perhaps not obvious in the parable, but it's there to be sure. Remember that's a younger brother who was lost. It's an older brother who was back at home. And the truth is, an older brother who really loved his younger brother would have not been at home. He would have not been in the field. You know where he would have been? He would have been looking for his younger brother. But he's hoping his brother gets what he deserves. And now he comes back and he's not only not getting what he deserves, he's getting all the stuff he doesn't deserve. All this mercy stuff is making him sick. Where's judgment when you need it? In James chapter 2, James says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks be to God. Because friends, if mercy did not triumph over judgment, you and I would be dead and in hell. The older brother should have been looking for his younger brother. But thanks be to God, there is a true older brother. And that true older brother is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who has come to seek and to save those who are lost and who is happy to embrace any who will come to him, any who will come to him. And because he is happy to embrace any who will come to him, we too are happy to embrace and to go and seek, as a matter of fact, those who have not and invite them to come in. I say for you in your take-home truth, on your outline, friends, religion cannot make us righteous. Only Jesus can. And so keeping the rules didn't make you better than anybody. Your religion didn't make you better than anybody. The only thing that makes you better off than anybody is that you're related to Jesus Christ and his righteousness has been applied to you and to me. Now, how can that happen? We're going to bow You need to recognize as I need to recognize. No matter what your particular sin or type of sinning, the truth is you're a sinner. Deep-seated resentment, self-righteous sinning, wanton self-exploration, rebellious sinning, whatever type. You are and I am. But recognize Jesus paid the cost. This older brother was shown that there's a cost that he didn't want to pay. But Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He paid the cost. Repent of your sin of whatever type. And then receive Christ into your life. We're going to pray in just a moment. But let me say, my concern is that if you're self-righteous about your position before God and in your view of others, friends, my greatest concern is that perhaps you have never come to the merciful Savior. You've never really seen yourself as you truly are. You've sat through church service after church service. You know all the right answers. You've never come to the Savior. And so you're resentful. You're hateful. And you're joyless. But He can change that. If you recognize who you truly are, who He is, what He's done for you, and receive Him into your life. We're going to bow and pray. It's not a magical formula but I invite you to receive Jesus Christ who waits with open arms to put his robe of righteousness on you, sandals on your feet and a ring on your finger and invite you into his family. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you again. For this marvelous story from the lips of the Lord Jesus. I thank you for the conviction that it represents for my heart. Lord, I am prone to self-righteousness. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, Lord, forgive us that we would ever look at anyone, ever look at anyone and say they haven't done enough to deserve your mercy. None of us deserves your mercy, not an ounce of your mercy. And yet You have lavished Your mercy abundantly upon us. And so, Lord, we are all simply sinners with empty hands when we come before You, no matter our background, no matter what we've done or haven't done. I thank You for Your merciful and missionary heart. And I thank You for changing me from the inside out. And I thank You for the conviction of Your Holy Spirit and Your Word when I'm prone to to turn back to a sinful disposition. Thank you for stories like this that do that very thing. Lord God, I pray right now that you're changing hearts, that you're convicting hearts that perhaps have become stony and cold, like the older brother, like the religious leaders. And I pray that perhaps some are coming to you for the first time. Having been in church their entire lives, they're coming to you for the first time. Or getting right with you for the first time in a long time. Lord, if there are any younger brothers here, who are spending their lives in wanton living, find that in the end it is empty. Help them to know that you wait with open arms. That they too sin in a different way, and they need the Savior who has died for their sin. Glorify yourself in this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.